This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello, it's Paul Wheelock and welcome to the Liverpool Classics podcast on the Blood Red channel. And this match that we're going to talk about today is without question a Liverpool Classic. And some would even argue that it is one of the best team displays in the club's incredibly rich history. The match I'm talking about is Liverpool 5, Nottingham Forest 0. And to talk about the match, I'm delighted to say I'm joined on the line by Dan Kay. Not only because of his encyclopedic Liverpool knowledge, but also like me and probably Ian Doyle on the sports desk. He is one of the members of the sports desk who can actually remember it. Dan, are you OK, mate? <laughs> Yes, thank you for reminding me of my aged years. But, um, <laughs> yes, in, in, in instances like this, it, it actually becomes a virtue because even though I was 10, nearly 11, uh, when this match was played, unfortunately, I wasn't actually at Anfield that day. It is, I think, seared into my memory and I think a lot of Liverpool supporters who remember it at the time and also rightly remember how it's kind of really been held up as a as a pinnacle as to what a, what a team performance can be and um you know, it, we've seen some great times in, in the last two or three years, particularly uh, with Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool. But um, you know, this the, this match against Forest very much stands in the very, very the top strata of, of of any performances from any club. I would say. Just before we get actually into the the match itself, uh, the manager who oversaw the, the 5 0 win, win of the course was Kenny Dalglish. And you're probably aware now that on mm. Friday night it was announced that Sir Kenny had tested positive for coronavirus and that he'll remain in hospital despite showing no symptoms, which sounds positive. Uh, I'm pretty sure me and you, Dan, would just like to echo all the well wishes that have come his way already and that he's uh, feeling better soon. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, Kenny is a. Uh a figure in our city that really goes way beyond football. And I think everybody was very shocked and, and concerned uh, when this news broke last night. Obviously, it, it seems, we hope and pray that, that the prognosis is is, is is hopeful and positive, that he, that he is asymptomatic and, and that he, you know, he's in the best place at the moment to get the care he deserves. But obviously, particularly with this being, you know, a few days short, you know, short of the Hillsborough anniversary, when I think Kenny and everybody from that area is very much in the, in the forefront of people's minds. You could see on social media and from speaking to people last night, it was you know it had a you know quite a strong emotional impact on people. And as you say, Paul, you know I think there'll be countless people, not just in Liverpool but across the across the whole country and across the whole world, that be thinking of Kenny and his family and, and wishing them well at this time. Well said. We'll take you back to April thirteenth, nineteen eighty eight, then to the match Liverpool five Nottingham Forest nil. But again, just before we actually talk about the goals and the performance and the atmosphere and everything around the time, like, just tell me about the, the landscape, actually, where Liverpool were going into the game, what, what they've been doing and what they stood to achieve for, for listeners who, who may be younger or who, who've never experienced this, this kind of season. Yeah, well, I mean, the, ironically, the only other season, certainly in my lifetime, and really it's a bit of a Liverpool anorak. I don't think there's that many seasons even before. You know, like I shuffled on the scene in the, in the late 70s, but really are comparable. The only one really you could compare to 87-88 is the season that we're still in the middle of now or stuck in a hiatus of. Because Liverpool, uh, having lost the, 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 the league to Everton in, in 1987, um, strengthened very strongly that summer, played a British record 1.9 million to bring Peter Bersier from Newcastle and John Barnes, uh, 900,000 from Watford. Uh, Ray Houghton followed shortly in the October, I think that was another 900,000 people from Oxford. And this was Kenny Dalglish really building his second great side, having lost Ian Rush um, to Juventus in the summer of '87. Um, and really, Liverpool started the season strongly, just like they did this year, and never really relented. Um, it was an unusual start to the season because there was some uh, there was a collapse through in the cop 
So Liverpool had to play the first three or four games away from home. Um, and won, I think, three out of the four. They won at Arsenal on the opening day. Uh, I think they only drew at West Ham. So they didn't play a match at Anfield until mid-September, when they beat Oxford 2-0. But um, they basically in a, went the first 29 games of the season unbeaten, uh, with equally, which equaled Leeds United's uh, record from the 1970s. And irony of ironies being what it is, the, the, the match that could have broken the record was at Goodison Park. Uh, and at, at this stage, Everton was still the only team to have beaten Liverpool in the league, only team to have beaten Liverpool this season because they'd won a, a league cup tie down field early in the season to a, a jammy deflected goal from Barry Stevens towards the end. Um, and on the day, uh, in, in, in 88, March 88, Wayne Clark scored an early goal and Liverpool were beaten. But um, I think the... Liverpool were still progressing well in the FA Cup. And the, the weekend before this league fixture against Forest, and in fact, I, I think it's quite possible that this fixture might actually have been moved because Liverpool were in the FA Cup semi-final. Mm-hmm. And they beat Forest um, 2-1 at Hillsborough um, to, to, to reach the final for the second time in three years. So um, the two teams reconvened at Anfield on the Wednesday night. With Liverpool at this stage on the brink of the title, they had it. You should you should point out at this stage they had by this stage after the Everton game also lost the second league game to Forest. Mm-hmm. It was um, like a trilogy, wasn't it? These matches in the space of was, a few a few yeah. weeks. I think one one of the league games must have been postponed, maybe because of the weather. Because basically, they played for maybe it was the Anfield game that was postponed. Then because they played Forest right at the start of April on Saturday afternoon and lost two one at the City Grounds. So that was the second league defeat, and then. Possibly a fortnight later, there was the semi-final of the FA Cup, and then Nisley, and then this, the, the return fixture at Anfield came on the Wednesday night. So, as you say, it was a trilogy of Liverpool and Forest playing three times in maybe 15, 18 days, something like that. Even though Man- I think Manchester United did actually finish the season in second place mm-hmm. when all the games were finished, but really, Forest were really, Forest were, I would say, I think most people would accept this the second best team that season and Liverpool's only real challenges but to be fair I don't even really think it's accurate or or fair to call them challenges because Liverpool had such such a huge lead similar to this season really by Christmas and early New Year that in many ways it was a possession and um, you know just just before we move on to to going back to 88 there was was an irony in the fact that um, obviously the, the the next match Liverpool would have played had the season not been curtailed because of the coronavirus outbreak would have been at Goodison. Yes. <laughs> and I don't think I was alone in, in, in some Liverpool fans in getting rather eerie, kind of, <laughs> not necessarily flashbacks, but I had a bit, a bit of a feeling in my bones, and particularly before the Watford game when Liverpool lost the first game of the season, that it may well be that even if even as someone that can be maybe a little bit uh, on the side of caution, and I, I wasn't calling the, the league titles over as early as some people. But I think by mid to late January, early February, I think you know you couldn't deny the evidence in front of your eyes. But I still had this nagging doubt in the back of my mind that are are Everton going to do a Wayne Clark on us? Um, as it turns out, Watford took that away. But um, yeah, it, it was it, it, that that was the build up really to this game. And um, I was I was it was, it was during half term, so even though it was a midweek night, I was keen as mustard to go to this match. But unfortunately, we had a. Um, uh, a family do that night that had been <laughs> locked in stone for ages and despite my desperate protestations to my dad at the age of 10 you, you do what you're told don't you so unfortunately I, I had no chance to get in fact I only went to one match this season at 4-0 win over Newcastle just before Christmas but thankfully this and, and there's nowhere near as, as much footage of this season as, 
as I would like it to be. But there's, I would say maybe a third of the matches I don't think I've ever seen the goals of. But thankfully, this particular match was um, shown on BBC Sports Night. So there was highlights shown that evening. And I'm pretty sure that the club released the full 90 minutes. It did, yeah. A few years afterwards on VHS video. Um, it was that so good, wasn't it? It, it? it was that yeah. good. Because again, to listeners now, they kind of take uh, football highlights, second penny, you've got it on your phone, you've got it on your laptop, you've got it on your... It's basically on demand whenever you like it. But that was my mm. memory. I was probably probably six, maybe six, I think, at the time. And obviously getting yeah. mad into footy. And that's my, uh, like, pervading memory from it, mate. It was, it was obviously the game itself and watching it. But the fact that it was on TV and, like, highlights, you used to get, like, the big match, didn't you, on a, a Sunday for every so often or FA Cup. But, yeah, this was... Act- they actually put highlights out and with good reason as well, wasn't it, really? Well, uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's hard probably for kind of fans who've grown up in the Premier League era where you know you have a minimum, even in, from when it started in 1992, you'd have a minimum of two live matches a week. And obviously these days, it's sometimes four, five, six. And that's just in this country before you start going on about foreign football. But in the 80s, you know, and certainly in the old days of the first division, if you if you got to see six, you know, six or seven live matches a season on a Sunday afternoon, or um, you, you know, you would you would be lucky. As you said, there'd be the occasional sports night or midweek sports special on ITV where you get the odd highlights. And match of the day and the big match on, you know, again, the two terrestrial channels. But it wouldn't necessarily be every week. You know, it was kind of quite a kind of arbitrary way of how it was organised. Um, and it, it, it was getting missed, but the TV company struck gold by sending the crews to Anfield on this night. And, you know, where are we? 30, 32 years on. Um, it's still one that, um, you know, a lot of the classic TV channels and LFE TV themselves are only ever too happy to put out again because like it you know like great music great theater great art great sport is timeless and, yeah, and, uh, and this performance certainly certainly was and always will be i think I think if anyone's not seen it, I'm pretty sure a lot of people who are, are listening to this have. But if you're not, if you're one of those people who have unfortunately not to see it, Liverpool five, Nottingham Forest into Google. There's a I watched it again this morning. There's a five six minutes highlights package uh, to to watch there. It's it's absolutely breathtaking, isn't it, mate? It's it's the actual every goal is a brilliant team goal and brilliantly finished but it's the actual speed of the football that's played and the, the incision of the passing. Yeah. I know a lot of people say the difference between the modern game and say 30 years ago is the pace of football but watching that again this morning that that's not particularly the case No and I mean you know there's, 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 I think I've seen a few, a few different lengths of highlights package but to be honest I think it's only really when you actually watch the full 90 that you're able to appreciate the 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 full scale and nature of the performance because, you know, as I said, Nottingham Forest were a good side. Um, Brian Clough, who'd been there probably 10 or 11 years by that stage, obviously when he came in in the late 1970s, it's one of the great achievements in British football and even if, um, you know, without going into it in too great detail, he, he isn't particularly well regarded. No, part no. Because some of the unfortunate comments he came about over out about Hills in the, in, the, in the 90s. But in a footballing sense, you can't argue that what he did in the late 1970s was um, to a certain degree unprecedented and probably will never happen again. Took over a you know a, a mid a mid ranking Midlands team like Nottingham Forest, got them promoted uh, to the first division, won the league championship in their first season, and then won back to back European cups. Um, early to mid eighties, kind of like they kind of settled into the pack a little bit more. But by the but towards the end of the decade, they did start to pick up again, and I think they won consecutive league cups mm-hmm. in eighty nine and ninety. 
got to the FA Cup final in 1991. Um, so you know, so they were not a bad team. They were no mug side. And yet, in many ways, 5-0 for Appleton. You know, if, if, they'd, if they'd left Anfield that night having conceded 10 goals or more, I don't really think they could have really have complained because Liverpool's dominance, but also the, the, the fluency and the verve and the freedom with which they played. I mean, this was a team... I, I'm, I think I'm fairly... I, I think I'm right in saying that after this match, Liverpool were one win away from, from being mathematically certain from clinching the title. Yes. And they, they didn't actually do it the first attempt. I think they went to Norwich the following week and only drew 0-0. And the title was clinched the, you know, the, the Saturday after that with a 1-0 win over Tottenham. So, but obviously, they, the league was virtually in the bag. And also, they got themselves to the FA Cup final. Now, Liverpool had won the FA Cup two years before against Everton um, to clinch the double. But through Liverpool's long year of success in the, in the, the 70s and 80s, the FA Cup was always a, a, a trophy that we found very difficult to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, it's well documented. Bob Page is the most successful manager in, in English football history, certainly pro rata in terms of trophies per year's managed. Never managed to win it. And um, when, you know, you know, nowadays, unfortunately, the FA Cup, you know, for, for a lot of younger fans, you know, doesn't seem to have the same kind of cachet that it did uh, and relevance that it did back then. But the FA Cup round, you know, in the 80s, and I, I've only kind of only considered this recently, I think in the mid to late 80s, I think the FA Cup became, it was big anyway. You know, like we were saying before, there wasn't much football on the tally. The FA Cup final was one of those games. And it, but on FA Cup final day, it wasn't just a game. Virtually the whole day was taken. The, the coverage would start at nine o'clock. You'd have all these daft programs like it cut final, it's a knockout, and you know they'd, they'd, they'd send reporters to the team hotels. It was a massive deal already in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But once the English clubs were banned from Europe um, following the high school disaster in 85, I think it became even bigger for those mm-hmm. for those next five years because there was no other European football, and so it was it was the FA Cup was massive. I don't think you can you can overstate that. So the fact that Liverpool had beaten Forest to Saturday before to get to the final and the, you know, the double-double was on, I think just added to that sense of freedom and, and, and fluency. And you know, this team was a great team and I think they knew it was a great team. Uh, yeah, they knew themselves they were a great team and, and they certainly played that way pretty much from the, from the moment the match against Forest started. If you look at the goals, every one of them, as I said previously, is an absolute beauty. I think the first mm. one, a lovely one too, between John Barnes and Ray Houghton scores. The second one is arguably, arguably my favourite, an unbelievable pass from Peter Bearsley to John Aldridge. Mm. A most Salah-like finish against Roma, wasn't it? A little chip over the keeper. Yeah. The third one, more great play between Barnes and Houghton. Gary Gillespie hammered one in. The fourth one, an absolutely unbelievable piece of skill from John Barnes, led to the goal. Peter yeah, Baisley certainly deserved. It's it just, it just sensational, isn't it? Again, like we look at yeah. what Salah can do now and then. We'll talk about John Barnes in a moment. And then the fifth one, although gets his second from a good play from Nigel Spatman, I think Baisley was involved yeah. again. It, it, watching him back, th- this you just the goals alone, let alone the performance that you rightly said could have been seven or eight nil if it wasn't for the Forest keeper Sutton. It they, they do take your breath away watching him back even now. Every single one of them really is, um, you know, is a work of art in its own right. And I think I'm right in saying to all, and I'm pretty sure this is still on YouTube actually. <clears throat> I think at the end of the season, the BBC match of the day did a goal of the season competition and it was all Liverpool. <laughs> and, you know, which I think just kind of shows how dominant Liverpool were that season. I mean, each particular goal has their own kind of thing to recommend it. But one, one thing I love about the first goal is that it seemed, it's quite nonchalant. And even down to like the, the commentary from Motsum at the time, um, Hansen brings the ball out of defence. 
the ball's kind of worked to Houghton midway through the midway, kind of between the halfway line and the forest penalty area. And he just plays this, you know, this quick, sharp one-two with, a, I think it might be John Aldridge. And as he's through on the goalkeeper, Steve Sutton just casually just, just prods it underneath him and then just runs away with his arm in the air like a different shallow team. Whereas, you know, other teams scoring goals like that <coughs> would be having, you know, 11, 11 men piling on to probably half the coaching staff as well. <laughs> I suppose to a certain degree, this team, you know, I mean, how I think it's going to be only came in the October, November. But, it, you know, this, it, these were the days really before squad rotation. Mm-hmm. So even if, um, I think I'm right in saying Ronnie Whelan missed yes. a large part of the second half of the season, which is why Nigel Spatman, an excellent player though he was, he Got really his back up to the, the first choice of, uh, first choice midfield, between, uh, which was Whelan and McMahon. Um, <coughs> they, um, but by and large, you know, the, the same core of players, probably the same 14, 15 players, had played the majority of the games all season. So they knew each other's game inside out. And I think that's what that's probably another of the reasons why they were kind of so in tune with each other and so on, on the same wavelength. I think the second goal from you know, Aldo's first proves that. You know, the ball from Peter Beardley, it's probably, you know, some people might call that a long ball. The ball probably travels 60 yards, but it's caressed absolutely perfectly into his path. So much so that Aldo doesn't even need to take a touch. And, uh, and he's just able to calmly chip the ball over um, the goalkeeper as he comes out. The third goal, the third goal is actually, if you watch the footage back, it's almost too quick for the cameraman. <laughs> it's from a quick and taking corner at, yeah. at, at the cop end of the Cameron Road corner. And thankfully, we just managed to get on, uh, get back on it in time to see Gary Gillespie slamming the ball um, into the net with his left foot from inside the box. For me, the fourth goal, I think, is, is, the, is, the, one, is, is, the, is the one I would choose more than any other because it, it just shows John Barnes at his absolute imperious best. This was his first season at Anfield, having having moved from Watford. I think I'm right in saying he was voted double footballer of the year, the yes. PFA and the Football Writers Awards. The semi-final, the Saturday before, Nottingham Forest right-back, Steve Chettle, had given a rather unfortunate interview to one of the papers. And it may well be <laughs> a tabloid journalism being what it is. He may well have been slightly stitched up with a headline, I don't know. But I, it's it, basically, I think it came out before the semi that he said he was going to have John Barnes on toast. Now, within the first, I think, eight to ten minutes of the semi-final, uh, John Barnes raced down the left wing, got outside of Chettle. Chettle brought him down for the penalty, which Aldridge gave him for the lead. And it's uh, you know he gave him a fairly tortuous time over over these next couple of uh, over these two games. But the, the fourth goal in particular, the ball's kind of ferried out to Barnes right by the the left hand corner flag, really the corner of the Coffin the Kenwin Road. Chettle t- tries to face him up. By this stage, he probably didn't know what day it was. And Barnes pushes the ball through his legs, um, gets to the byline, cuts the ball back in the kind of time on his tradition. And Peter Beard, he just hits across it perfectly into the far corner with the outside of his right foot. And it's, you know, Moxon's commentary, he's almost purring afterwards because, and to be fair, whether you think he's Liverpool biased or not, I don't know how you could report on it any other yeah. way because it was. It was just football played to the very highest, with a very highest degree. And then the fifth goal, um, again, Liverpool swarming all over Forest and Nigel Spatman very unselfishly, having you know, broken through the Forest defence, just laid it square and all they had a tapping. But in some ways, some of the best moves of this game actually didn't result in goals. One in particular in the first half, it might be just before, just after the second goal, when the ball's works you know, round the edge of the penalty and comes to Peter Beardley. And he sh- drops the shoulder, shimmies past one or two, and then absolutely cracks the ball mm-hmm. 
with his right foot, it comes off the crossbar. And if that had gone in, you know, that might have been the best goal of the game. But there was, I think, you know, three or four other examples of just sublime football that didn't result in goals, but, but in many ways, you know, were as, as deserving of, of credit as the ones that, that, that did actually make it into the back of the net. I don't think I'm over-exaggerating it when if you look back at that moment you were talking about then about Beardsley where he jinks away from three or four plays and smashes the crossbar, mm. you can see the kind of similarities to say a Lionel Messi now, like don't get me wrong, Lionel Messi's on a different scale mm. to maybe every player that's ever existed, but Beardsley was that good, wasn't he? He was absolutely sensational, Without particularly that, se- that season. Yeah, I mean, he had a slightly slow start to his Liverpool career. Don't you think he scored at Anfield? Possibly. I think his first goal, and I think a lot of people feel this was kind of like his breakthrough moment. It might His first goal at Anfield might have been in the Merseyside derby, which, again, we were talking about kind of this trilogy with Forrest. So in the October, and you know, it's important to remember, Everton were, Everton were champions at this stage. Howard um, Kendall had just left, but Carol Colin Harvey was in charge. And they still had really the core of the team that had been, you know, genuine, credible rivals to Liverpool over the previous couple of seasons. Um, quirk of the fixture, this meant that the, the, the first league derby was due to be, I think, the first in November at Anfield. And this was one of the rare televised games that was shown live on the BBC on the Sunday afternoon. But the two teams were drawn together in the, in the League Cup, Littlewoods Cup, I think it was known then, the midweek before. So there was two Anfield derbies in the space of four or five days. And Everton won the first game at Anfield with this uh, late deflected goal by Gary Stevens. So, particularly with them being still the reigning champions, Liverpool wanted to get the crown back. Um, it was a big game, yeah, the, 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 the second one. I have to say one of my favourite ever goal celebrations is from the first goal of that. In fact, the both celebrations, both goals that day, but the first one... McMahon, wasn't it? John Barn plays a great ball through, McMahon runs through and, and scores at the Anfield Road end. And when you watch it back on the footage... Aldridge and McMahon, obviously two scousers, uh, two Liverpoolians. The how to put it? it, it it's a celebration that's kind of laced with passion, but almost anger as well. And they look like they're about to rip each other's heads off, and then charge down to the way to the Everton fans in the away end. Obviously, they don't. Um, but it, I think that just indicates how you know. There's no getting away from it. In the mid 1980s, Merseyside was the epicenter of the football universe. Yeah, no one will ever convince me other than that. Sadly, because of the tragedy of Heysel, you know, it was never able to be proved on a continental stage. But Liverpool and Everton were the best two teams in Europe, and I'll never be convinced of anything different to that. And as I say, Everton, even if they were maybe starting to come slightly down from the peak um, once Howard had left, was still a very, very good side. But the the, the Beardsley goal in that game, I think, really was his breakthrough moment. Again, it was another fabulous move. Back heel from John Barnes uh, put Steve McMahon in down the left. He played a cross in which Kevin Rapp. Kevin Ratcliffe and John Aldridge, I think, went for the near, the near post. Ratcliffe managed to get a block on, and the ball kind of spun loose to Beardsley, and he it, he hit it perfectly on the half volley and cracked it into the roof of the net, past the greatest goalkeeper I've ever seen, Neville Southall, who, who couldn't get a sniff of it. And there's a, there was a great celebration from that. There's a few fans come on the pitch. Barry Davis's commentary says something like, and he gets a kiss from it from a man wearing a blue and white shirt, a blue and white striped shirt, which, again, is another kind of nice little... Merseyside thing and that really was the moment that kind of saw Peter Beardsley kick on and, and he was uh, I suppose if I had to compare to a modern day player maybe the closest thing would be closest thing to him would be perhaps Roberto Firmino yeah. in that he was he wasn't an out and out striker but he was one of those kind of players that played between the midfield and, 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 and the attack 
and links and links to play in that way. While at the same time scoring, you know, you know, his fair share of goals himself. And him and him and him and um, John Barnes really. Um, if there was a signature goal, I've, I've, unfortunately, not every. It, it, a few years later, you could get season review videos, and every goal of every season was on it. So even in the games you didn't go, so you could see what happened. I would say in 87, 88, there, there were some goals of that, that season that basically, if you weren't at the match, you'll never see because they just weren't, you know, the cameras weren't there. But if there was a signature goal for that season, and, and probably the most poignant example of it was in the semi final at Hillsborough, the Saturday before the 5 0 game, it would basically be Barnes on the left, a 1 2 with Beardsley, Barnes crossing from the left, and Aldridge finishing. And, you know, in the semi final, Aldridge cracked it on the volume. I think that actually did in goal of the season. I think another prime example of that, and again, apologies for our, our uh, uh, for any other teams who may be listening. The FA took Liverpool and Everton, I think, met four times. Well, yeah, four times actually. Twice in the league, twice in the cups. Yeah, uh, Everton won the Everton won the little was cup tied Anfield, but the two sides were, were drawn together in the fifth round of the FA Cup with Goodison. Again, this match was, was shown live, and this time it was Ray Houghton getting his head on. To the, the John Barnes trust that had come about from a one-two with Peter Beardsley, and it, it was—it seems so simple, and it kind of made you think: How are teams not getting onto this? Because this same tactic is resulting in an awful lot of goals for Liverpool. But I just—I I guess the the ability and, and the football intelligence of the players involved meant that they were able to work the play and work the work the teams around so much that they might have known what was coming. We just weren't able to do anything to stop it. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. It's a great point because you look at the great teams of today, Liverpool and Manchester City, how many times have you seen certain goals scored by the certain players at the top end of the field? Mm. I think that's a great point that you can be well coached, but at this level, the intelligence of players is absolutely huge. And you've mentioned him a couple of times there, Dan. I've got to ask you about him, given the season he had and just what a footballer John Barnes was. You know, again, it's, I don't know, maybe nowadays everything, this even this seems like, beyond nostalgia now to a lot I don't know about you but like nostalgia now for, say for Liverpool for example maybe the 2000 the, the treble winning season on the Julier this feels like even yeah. further back but can't be overstated just like an incredible player John Barnes was and, and, and this season was probably is the height of it wasn't it I imagine yeah I mean it, it was it was a fascinating character John Barnes and his whole transfer to Liverpool was you know a, you know, kind of very significant time I guess in the football club and even the city's Kind of football history and social history, mm-hmm. because it's, you know, it, it's a matter of fact that John Barnes was Liverpool's first regular black player. <clears throat> Howard Gale, a local lad from Toxford, had yeah. broken through in the early 1980s, um, but but didn't really uh, wrote himself into folklore with an epic performance in the 1981 European Cup semi-final at Bayern Munich, but didn't really establish himself. And went on to have a very good career in the football league with the likes of Birmingham and Blackburn Rovers, mm-hmm. but. Um, but John Barnes really was Liverpool's first high-profile black player. You know, it, it, you know Everton, Everton, I think Everton had a guy called Cliff Marshall mm-hmm. uh, and also Mike Trebilco in 1966 FA Cup era, who was mixed race. But, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a sad reality of, of, of life in the 1980s that, you know, unfortunately, racism was a part of, was a, was a part of well, it's never not been part of life until it's now, unfortunately. But it, but it was, it was, it was, it, it was allowed to carry on a lot more unsettled and checked than what it is now back then. So when when you know, when Barnes did sign, there was sadly some some graffiti on the cop. Um, the, 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 um, 
there was also the, the nature of this track. It was quite a long proje- projected transfer in that it was talked of for a while. There was some talk that he was waiting for, for clubs from abroad to come in. But in the end, he did sign. I think the fact that, as I mentioned before, Liverpool didn't play at Anfield for the first month of the season, I think enhanced that kind of sense of anticipation because on his, within 10 minutes of his debut at Arsenal on the opening day of the season, he linked it with Peter Beardy down the left flank to create a goal for John Aldridge. And there was already this feeling that this guy is a bit special. I suppose he first really came to public prominence three years before, in the, the summer of 1984, when he scored an incredible goal for England uh, in a friendly against Brazil in the Maracana, when he basically ran through half the team and scored the kind of goal that most British people felt only Brazilians would score. Mm-hmm. Um, and this Liverpool team did, of course, go on to be labelled kind of better than the Brazilians. But, um, you know, you can be the best player in the world. There's no guarantee that you're necessarily going to fit into a new setup, a new team. You know, this was a Liverpool team that had been, by a part of the odd fellow year here and there, successful pretty much constantly for 20-odd years. But I think it's a sign of not just his kind of footballing skill, Barnes, but his footballing intelligence, the way that he was able to adapt to his new surroundings. Because you know, there was a, new, a few new players that had come in, Beardley, Aldridge has only arrived in the January of 1987 from Oxford. Ray Houghton didn't come in until um, the October, November. It was kind of like a team in transition. But, but you know, Barnes is renowned, obviously, for his dribbling skills. But I think one of the an underrated aspects of his game is his passing. Uh, the, the, the goal I mentioned just before in the, the first league derby, mm-hmm. uh, the McMahon goal, when he just plays this clever little dink with the outside of his, his, his boot from the centre circle. To put um, to put McMahon through. Also, his heading was very underrated. I, I, I think it um, kind of a, a great forgotten goal of that season. Another televised game. So I've talked about maybe there were slightly more televised games than there <laughs> It was an FA Cup fourth round tie last time. I think ITV showed line. And um, Villa had been relegated, I think, that season. But big club Villa. I think they came straight back up and sure Liverpool took something like ten or twelve thousand to Villa Park that day. And it was a tight game early in the second half. Barnes scored a magnificent header. Um, at the, the Whitten Lane end, I think, which was the away end of Villa Park. And it was a fabulous goal because the, the cross comes in from the right-hand side. And the ball is actually kind of... He, he's towards the left side of the box. And the ball's actually kind of quite almost behind him. And he basically kind of like did a backwards diving header and just angled it into the far corner. You know, fans go, it, it's on YouTube. Fans go mad behind the goal. He just had everything. And, um, you, know, I, 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 you know, I think those three seasons between 87, you know, from 87 to 90... I think it's impossible. Yeah, I, I can't. It's hard to imagine there were, there were any better players in Europe. It's very sad we never got to see this Liverpool team against the great 18 Milan side. Mm-hmm. The great 18s were Bullet, Van Basten and Reichard. Uh, they obviously were quite dominant in the European Cup at that stage. But, you know, final point on Barnes is football and intelligence. He had a couple of bad injuries in the early 90s, particularly an Achilles injury. It changed his position, didn't he? In 1992. And he lost that yard of pace that enabled him to get away, to get away from people. But he then kind of reinvented himself as a central midfielder. And this is where his passing and his positional sense and his footballing intelligence really came to play. And he got himself back into the England squad uh, in the mid-1990s and played a key role in you know, that, that... I don't know if I can quite say great Roy Evans side of, of the mid-1990s. But, but a very good very one, a good one, weren't they? And it, it was a very good side. And, and the, the, the frustration of that side is that they were... They had such an incredible footballing ability, but unfortunately, they didn't. Really, they didn't have the same will to win that Fergus, that Alex Ferguson instilled into his Manchester United side. But I always felt, particularly that Barnes' last season, 96-97, and it, it's 
he has to go to Newcastle and then his Liverpool career really ended in a, in, in a very sad way with, with a team that finished fourth in a two-horse race but I always felt about that season that obviously you know, it, he'd have been at Liverpool 10 years by that stage I reckon he must have been 34 because he must have been 24, mm-hmm. 25 when he joined and, and like I say it was 97 he joined in 87 but I always felt if Barnes it, the days before rotation, but if Barnes' legs had been maybe preserved a little bit more in the first half of the season, he might just have had a bit more in the tank to maybe help shepherd them over the line. It's a little bit of a kind of case of what ifs there, but it was a privilege to what, even if I didn't really start going regularly until the early 90s when he wasn't quite the free flowing, scorching the turf winger of his early days, it was just a privilege to, you know, to watch him wear a red shirt. And he gave me and a, an awful lot of Liverpool supporters you know, such pleasure and enjoyment. No argument about that. You mentioned Brazil a moment ago, just before we kind of get to the final part of this podcast. You, Sir Tom Finney, the late great Sir Tom Finney, was there that night. Yeah. And he said the performance, you couldn't see it better anywhere, not even in Brazil, because again, it was back then, everything was Brazil. It might have changed a little bit nowadays. But just to bring it up to the modern day, I was uh, working for the Leicester-Liverpool game on Boxing Day at home. Uh, I think it was because we had Kai, our video guy. No, Sam actually, Sam Fadrici was at the game and I was back at home yeah. helping coordinate things. And I've got to be honest, mate, I was I was watching it and like so many people, absolutely, hugely impressed with the way Liverpool played. And it did cross my mind. Like, you know, 30, 30 plus years on, Liverpool 5, Forest yeah. It There's been many, many great Liverpool performances then. So many in, in recent history. We can we can talk bars or we can talk so many great games. But... In terms of complete one-off individual, I say individual, it was a team performance. That, that to me, it, it mirrored it almost, or it got close. Would, am I going too far there, or would you agree? No, I, I, I don't think you're going too far. I mean, to be honest, that, that Leicester game was one of my big regrets of this season, because it didn't go. It, it, it was Boxing Day. I'd been for Qatar for the World Club Championship the, you know, the week before. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I had to balance things out with work as well. And... Um, I do remember it. You know, I, I, I ended up having a, you know, a really, a, a really enjoyable evening. I think it did a, a day shift, and then we managed to book a table in a nice bar by mine and a few, few of the mates went and watched it there, and then went back to someone's house and had a bit of a party. And I think it was one of those. It was another of those moments where, even if at the time I was probably saying not over yet, I think deep down, particularly the fourth goal from Trent, which was just you know a, a goal that absolutely would not have been out of place in this eighty-seven, eighty-eight team. Where in, I think it was one of those kind of like signature moments when he kind of felt this is a champion team the, 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 I mean to be fair I think they've been a champion team for two years and in any other circumstances they won the league last season obviously with you know, Manchester City breaking records mm-hmm. but in terms of a complete performance um, I, 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 I definitely think that they, they are on a parallel uh, with each other I think also particularly because of the context of, 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 the, of uh, the Leicester game um, you know, Liverpool had obviously just come back from Qatar even as imperious as Liverpool had been by that stage when you know, there had only been one game that they hadn't won out of what was probably 17, 18 league matches at that time, you know, the draw at Manchester United in October. It was very much felt after you know, the, the intense early December period you know, with the you know, exclusion of the Champions League group stages and you have you know, midweek league games then, the derby, travelling to Qatar, you know, two, two very intense matches there and all the travel. I think there was a lot of people feeling, well, you know, Leicester could be a bit of a banana skin. And the fact that Liverpool won so convincingly, and probably like this Forest game, if they'd won by five, six, seven or eight, I don't think Leicester could have had too many complaints. Yeah, I, 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 I think it is a fair comparison. Um, you know, both from the, both teams from the East Midlands. The fact, the fact that Liverpool were away from home as well uh, in a, you know, this season. 
I think adds to the you know, the, the impressive nature of that performance. Um, and Tom Finney, um, I mean, I knew a little bit about Tom Finney because my late dad was evacuated to a place called Wharton, which is near Preston during mm-hmm. the war. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Tom Finney was a Preston North End icon. So I kind of, you know, grew up hearing about all oh, the great Tom Finney and obviously the matter of public record. Uh, Bill Shankly absolutely idolised him. So, so I, I do remember you know, in the aftermath of, of this Forest game when, you know, when Sir Tom made, made those kind of made those comments. Uh, you know, my dad and a lot of the older kind of people around saying, "Well, if if this fella calls it, he would know because he is seen, You know, he was always seen as one of the the great arbiters of the game, someone that knew the game inside out, and um, would not just dole cheap praise out for, for the sake of it. But you know, it, it would have been very difficult to look upon this performance and this Liverpool team, which you know, as, you know we have to underline again, this this Forest five 0 was not just kind of like a a little one off. I think they won something like eight or nine games that season by four goals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they were dominant week after week. But to do that to a team that was seen as one of the major rivals, I think really illustrated just how how impressive they were. Certainly were. Let's finish with a bit of fun. I did give you some pre-warning about this, mate, rather than putting you on the spot. Yeah. But we did, we've we've done the comparisons on this podcast. We've done the pa- comparisons on all the podcasts we've done between 87 and 88 and this magnificent 1920 side, which, you know, will win the league, as we, we said off, off, off mic, you know, football will come back and Liverpool will win yeah. the league. We've just got to wait for that to happen. But let's do a bit of a, a mix and match. If you can pick... An 11 from the 87-88 winning, title winning squad and the 19-20 squad that, as I say, will win the league. What would you go with, mate? Mm. Let's hear what you've got. Well, it's tough. And as I said to you just before, before before we started, you know, I, I might have changed my mind by the time of the end of the podcast <laughs> when I wrote this you know, half an hour ago. Um, it, it's, it, it's very, very difficult to pick. You know, one aspect to it as well is that 87-88 was, was pretty much 4 4 2 and 19-20 is 4-3-3. But um, I've gone with a 4-3-3 because I suppose it just lets you get more attackers in there. So one of the closest decisions was in goal. Now, I've always, I was always a big Bruce Bobelar fan. Um, I know, you know the, not all Liverpool fans perhaps see him in, in quite the same regard. And he had his funny moments on the field. He could be, you know, he had his Brucey moments when he'd go wandering. But when the push came, you know, the save he made from Graham Sharp in 86, uh, the 86 got final was absolutely critical to winning the double. And I was a huge Boosie fan, but Alison Becker is a goalkeeper amongst goalkeepers. And for me, he just about gets the edge. Because because of his calmness and assurance, I think, and, you know, that's the one, on the occasions when he's missed games this season, obviously he's missed a fair chunk of the season, that kind of calmness and reassurance that he he just naturally has by way of his presence, um, you know, has been noticeably missing. So, Alison gets the nodding goal for me. Um, I'm putting Trent in at fullback. I want as many scouts in there as possible. And I do think, you know, the young lad from West Derby has the potential to go on to be possibly end up getting named in all time Liverpool 11 mm-hmm. by the time his career is over. I do think he's potentially that good. You know, the, he's, as many people have said, he's almost redefined the position, you know, the, the position of right back and can, and can potentially dictate games from there in a way that he possibly wouldn't be able to do from centre mid where a lot of people feel that's where we should go. And so I'm slightly cheated because I'm putting Steve Nichol in at left back. Mm-hmm. Steve Nichol was a fantastic player. Yeah. So versatile. And I think he's the kind of player Jurgen Klopp would love, to be honest, because you know we've got a few players in the Liverpool team right now that can do a job in a number of positions like Ginny Wijnaldum. Steve Nichol, probably over the course of his long decorated Liverpool career, played in almost every position. And, and also knew where the goal was and scored a great hat-trick early on. 
in the 87-88 season away to Newcastle in another televised match. <laughs> um, Centre-half pairing, probably one of the easiest ones, I think, to go for, really, Alan Hansen and Virgil van Dijk. Wow, what and a I, partnership that would be. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, the likes of Ron Yates, Tommy Smith, would have a, would have a big shout, but I think when people are picking it all time, Liverpool 11, I think it would be very hard to look past those two. Um, so I'm going for three in midfield. Um, Ronnie Whelan would be a very... Whelan doesn't play in this match if he missed the second half of the season, so I'm kind of copping out a little bit by leaving him out because it's, you know, these are almost impossible decisions. I can think of some friends of mine that will probably, if they do hear this, will probably have a few harsh words with me because they're not particularly Jordan Henderson fans. But I'm putting Jordan Henderson in, in, this, in the holding midfield role for a number of reasons. I do think he's an exceptional footballer, an exceptional captain, an exceptional character, an, ex- an exceptional character. Um, and yeah, there's, a, there's an old football saying which might have come from Shanky, or might have come from someone else. A football seems like carrying a like carrying a piano. You need seven people to seven people to carry it and three people to play it. Yeah. But Jordan, but Jordan Henderson is, um, I think, you know, is now finally getting the recognition he deserves as a Liverpool great. And I think, bearing in mind the kind of, the very attacking emphasis I've got in the rest of the team, I think he would give uh, the back four whatever protection they might need should the opposition ever be able to get the ball off this lot, which I'm not convinced they would, to be honest. So the other two in midfield, that have Ray Houghton on the right, just about edging out Ginny Wijnaldum. You know, I'm a huge fan of Wijnaldum. And, and I, I, you know, so slightly off topic, I think one of the most important Chinese Liverpool can make when football resumes is getting him on a new deal because I think he's been a, a fundamental part of the progress we've made under Jurgen Klopp. Uh, and yeah, we can't have anyone other than John Barnes on the left mm-hmm. on the left hand side. I think I've said already why why that would be uh, one of the greatest players that's ever played the game, in my opinion. And then up front, it's very difficult. I mean, Bobby Firmino is one of my all time favourite Liverpool players. I've been weeding out this old American line about him being the straw that stirs the drink. For eons, long before some of my colleagues on the Echo Sports team jumped on the little bandwagon there with saying it's uh, Firmino. It's 2020 is the year Firmino. Well, to be honest, pretty much every year is the year Firmino since he's been wearing a red shirt, as far as I'm concerned. But I am going to, but I am going to leave him out of this just, just because I want, I want to put John Aldridge in there because he's a Liverpool great, he's a scouser, he's a, he's a goal poacher. And that's the one thing this Liverpool team doesn't really have, I guess, is, 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 is an out-and-out goal poacher. So I'm putting Aldo in there. Uh, and then either side of him, I'm having Mo Salah on the right and Sadio Mane on the left, who are two of two players that are really there. You know, their signings have taken Liverpool to a new level. Uh, fantastic footballers, but also as well, they just seem to be fantastic people. The way they represented the club, both of them, pretty much from the first day, They've been on the club books and worn the club shirt. You know they've, they've filled us with pride on and off the pitch, and, and you know I can't really look past them. But you know for me, sub bench it would be Grobola, McMahon, Firmino, Wijnaldum, and uh, the late great Gary Ablett. Wow. What a team that'd be. And I think you've done it really fair there. I, I made it six of the new school, five of the old school in the starting 11. And I think people are listening to this, probably like me, have thought at times this season when obviously transfers come up and a lot of our podcasts go, how do Liverpool improve? Well, I think you've just done it there, mate. Mm. <laughs> I think you've just done it. <laughs> I think you've just done it. Uh, it. It goes to show though, like, yeah, how good the 87, 88 team is. The fact that they've got five players in your starting 11 there, because let's face it, this this current crop of Liverpool players 
once the season restarts, it, it could be unprecedented the amount the points total that the team finishes with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it reminds me almost of, of, of an old line about um, about Tom Finney, who we were just talking about, which I think came from Bill Shankly, when um, he talked about some of the older lads in, the, in this newer team. And I can't remember who, who Shankly was talking about, but it, whoever, whoever you know, the new kid on the block was at this time, and he was, and, and Shankly said something like, "Well, he, he, he's good at doing this, he's good at good at doing that, but but um, Tom Finney would still give him a game." And then he said, "Mind you, Tom's about seventy-three now." <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the game of football is, you know, it, it's arguably more athletic than it was now. But some, you know, some aspects of football are innate, aren't they? They're inborn. You either get it or you don't. And I, and I think some of them are transferable across any era. And I think some, you know, to my mind, this Liverpool team that, that we've been enjoying over the last couple of years is a great side, and they were a great side last season. Even though they didn't, even even though they didn't win the league, um, but you know, they, 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 I, I think a, a significant, you know, a good number of players out of either of these two teams would have been able to transfer into the other almost seamlessly because um, possibly one of the most important characteristics of these two teams is the sheer enjoyment they got, the sheer enjoyment they seem to take from playing football. To the end of the day, football is about enjoyment, whether you're playing or watching. You know, without wanting to beat up on Manchester on United or Mourinho, it was pay- it was evident over the last couple of years during his kind of ill-fated stay at Old Trafford that no one was really enjoying it. You know, no one was really enjoying themselves, and that's why you know, in the build-up to Madrid last season, and you know, Liverpool had to win it. You know, Liverpool had to get over the line. You know, they, they lost the league in fourteen, lost various cup finals. They'd come so close. You know, there was a, there was a fear, a perception that they were becoming to be regarded as a bit of a choking team. But I and you know and others were trying to make the point that obviously we were desperate to win, and you know, the feeling of relief when that shot from the league hit the net and you knew we'd won. You know, I'll, I'll take that to, to the grave with me. At the same time, I do you know very much believe what I was saying in advance of the final, in that you know silverware cannot be the only barometer of success in football. <laughs> football is about enjoyment. It's a deviation, and I think you know obviously it feels more pertinent now than ever. Football really is, is is a diversion from the stresses and strains of everyday life. You know, we work hard during the week. We we pay our hard end to go and watch our team. Elevate us from the woes and and and, and the hardships of, of of life as it is. And I think these two teams, more than any other I've ever seen, have summed that up. You know, you know, thankfully it seems both of them are going to be rewarded with silverware. But by the same token, you know, the Rogers team are thirteen fourteen, even though they never won anything. I will always treasure them as one of my as one of my favourite ever Liverpool sides because of the way they played, because of the way they made us feel. Whether we were in the ground, whether we were watching on telly, that kind of joie de vivre, that enjoyment of the game for the sake of the game, rather than just winning at all costs. Winning's important, of course it is, but so is you know so is the actual the joy of football. And I think you know I've never seen, I've certainly I've never seen two teams that sum that up more than than these things. Very well said, and the perfect point to finish, Marie Mates. Thank you very much for taking your time to, to give us your memories. I'm Thank sure you. the people at home listening really have enjoyed enjoy that as much as I have heard on the phone to you. And really well, all we can too. say is, let's face it, we, we hope and we know that football will come back soon. And yeah. hopefully our Blood Red listeners knows at the moment we can't do much of the current day stuff because the players, like the rest of us, are self-isolating. So I hope you don't mind mm-hmm. if you're listening at home if we do more podcasts like this because let's face it, over April and May and even June, June the 
31st. There's some big anniversaries coming up, big landmark dates, and uh, we will be doing more of these Liverpool Classic podcasts. And Dan, it'd be great to, to have you involved again, please, mate. I would be honoured. It would be. I couldn't have enjoyed this more, Paul. And yeah, as you say, we're, we're so lucky that we're getting to the kind of the business end of the season where every day you look at the calendar, and if you're an anorak like me, you can go, well, on 73 this happened, and 86. And so, yeah, hopefully there's plenty more to come to keep us going until uh, the real business returns. And in the meantime, everybody stay safe and, and stay well. Most definitely. Thanks, Dan. Cheers for listening, everyone. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.